Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. Welcome to this iteration of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture seminar, a TMC seminar. Um, if you're new here, we'd love to have, we're going to pass around the sign-up sheet, which just helps us keep in touch with who's coming, which school they're from, helps us know where we need to reach out to spread the word more, who's finding value in this. So please mark your name, or if your name's not on here, just add your name, and we'll add you to our email list. Everyone is welcome. Let me start this over here, please. Uh, I'm Far Curlin. I'm one of the co-directors of Theology, Medicine, and Culture, along with Warren Kinghorn. And this this uh, seminar, we are delighted to welcome Josh Williams. Dr. Williams is um, uh, a product of the University of Chicago uh, School of Medicine, uh, where I was for many years before coming here, and has been, uh, from there, went out to Denver Health, to the University of Colorado's uh, medical, academic medical center, where he trained in pediatrics and has stayed on and is doing some interesting work, um, as we're going to hear about it today, uh, regarding vaccinations. And um, I welcome you to tell us anything more about yourself that, that you want folks to know, but uh, we're really glad to have you. And, and we'll just so you guys know, we typically, uh, you can interrupt at any point with a question, uh, so you know that. And we're going to, I'll try to make signals to wrap things up if you go longer than uh, 12.45, so we have time for question, uh, questions and comments from you. And we'll stay till about, formally till about uh, 1.15, but if you need to leave before that, we recognize people have 1 p.m. things, just feel free to do so, we won't. We, we know that's uh, we know that's the case. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for, um, I have, have timed this a couple times now, so it's about exactly 45 minutes, so we that's should fine. be, we should be. I'll give you some grace on that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I, I would just say the, the other important thing to know about me is that my wife, Danielle, and a good friend from college, uh, Ashley, are here and supported me. Um, and yeah, it's very touching. I'm really grateful for Duke and for having me out here. Uh, this has been a really exciting 24 hours already, full of great discussions. Uh, it's been fascinating to brainstorm with you about theology of vaccination, about potential uh, future projects, and really excited to talk to you a little bit today about some of the work I've done on religion and vaccination, which is my primary research interest. And I've titled my talk, Minister to Their Vaccination, Historical and Empirical Studies of Clergy Attitudes Toward Vaccination. Now, I, I don't have any disclosures financially related to this talk. I would like to disclose that Colorado is beautiful, and you should all <laughs> come out and visit. Uh, this is a picture of my daughter. I, I am biased, it's true. There's a selection bias. Um, this is my daughter, Eden, my son, Ephraim. And uh, this is the Maroon Bells, just outside of Aspen, uh, one of the more picturesque spots in Colorado. I certainly invite you to come out, and I'd love to host you if we have the chance. So what are our objectives for today? Well, first, I'd, I'd like to introduce why the study of religion and vaccination is relevant for us as physicians, as clergy members, as health officials today. I'd like to recount a historical study I've done on the Reverend Roland Hill, who uh, really is just kind of this wonderful legacy of concord between science and, that, and religion. I'd like to describe an empirical study that I've done in Denver regarding 
clergy attitudes toward vaccination, and then discuss a couple ongoing projects and the potential impact of work at this intersection. So that's our roadmap. So let's get started. Do, do you guys have Einstein bagels here? Mm. Is that a thing? Mm. Oh, okay. Susan has not. Great. I don't. I don't endorse Einstein bagels. I'm not being paid by Einstein bagels. <laughs> but this work did start about three years ago in an Einstein bagels in a coffee shop. Um, I was sitting down with my priest. We were catching up, um, talking about one another about uh, a busy chief resident year that I was doing, and I brought up a project I was doing related to influenza vaccination uptake. And he kind of interrupted me. He goes, "Man, the flu shot." No one gets the flu shot. Causes the flu doesn't even work. And I, I kind of taken aback. I sat in my chair, and I was a little silent for a moment, shocked that someone that I looked up to in so many different areas of my life, I felt like was very misguided around an important public health concern. So, yet simultaneously, this light bulb went off in my mind. Right? You know, the proverbial light bulb, and I wondered. How many other religious leaders share those attitudes about the influence of vaccines like mine? How many others regarding vaccines generally? What about their congregations? What's going on at this intersection of religion and vaccination? So I did two things. First was I convinced my priest to get the flu shot, appealing to a sense of social justice, which actually succeeded. And second, I decided to look in the literature and see if anyone else had investigated that question. Well, and after diving in, I realized two things pretty quick. Uh, first, all major religions began centuries, if not millennia, before the advent of vaccination. And second, currently, no major religions explicitly <coughs> prohibit or forbid vaccination. And many actually support social justice and community health in ways that resonate with the public health work of vaccination. A great paper on that is by John Gravenstein. You guys can look it up if you like. So if major sacred texts didn't address vaccines and major religions didn't prohibit vaccines, what work was there to do at this intersection anyways? Well, it's a great question. Stay tuned. We'll get there. But first, we need to go back. We need to look at the recommended immunization schedule for children today. And I apologize for the complexity of this slide. There are two main takeaways. First, we give children lots of vaccines. <laughs> Second, there was once a vaccine that is not on the schedule because the disease it was intended for has been eradicated, and we're on the verge of eradicating another. Indeed, vaccines have been one of the greatest public health triumphs of all time. So let's just take a look at the measles vaccine that you would normally get between one and then a second dose around four to six years of age as an example to illustrate the point. So in the post-World War II era, measles routinely caused hundreds of thousands of cases a year, thousands of complications like meningitis, and hundreds of deaths. Yet in the decade after the start of the introduction of the vaccine, rates fell nearly 40-fold, and by 2001, the U.S. actually went ahead and declared us measles-free. Well, on average, this victory for measles specifically translates into an average of 530,000 of cases, cases of illness averted and 440 deaths every year. And it's not just the case with measles. It's been true of polio. It's been true of smallpox. It's been true of rubella. Many, many more. In short, vaccines have reduced American infectious disease cases from the millions to the thousands and deaths from the tens of thousands to those we now count on fingers and toes. But vaccination has become a victim of its own success. And as the memory of vaccine-preventable diseases have faded, the urgency of vaccination has also waned. 
outbreaks of diseases have occurred. Uh, cases of measles, for example, have surged in recent years, including our famous Disneyland outbreak in California in 2014. Well, it's not just that people are losing the urgency of vaccination either. It's that they're also actively exempting their children from <coughs> vaccination. And in 47 states and Washington, D.C., parents can exempt their children from vaccines that are required for school entry for religious reasons. North Carolina is one of those states right here. And 17 states also offer philosophical objections to vaccines, my state of Colorado included. Well, studies suggest that religious exemptions might actually be rising, not because people are getting more religious, but because people are misusing these exemptions. In other words, parents without religious objections to vaccines are simply writing statements of faith to exempt their children from the procedure that they don't want. Dort Rubenstein Rice, oh, sorry, I skipped a slide. Well, religious vaccine exemptions, oh, hold on, there we go. Religious vaccine exemptions have become actually an increasing public health concern for us. So if you look here, rates tripled over the five years from 2006 to 2011, and largely plateaued from 2011 since, about one and a half percent of all kindergartners every year. But it's not stagnant everywhere, and actually, here in North Carolina, religious vaccine exemption rates have increased by 150% in the last six years. And so I did some back of the napkin math, and that translates to about 7,000 children in K through five schools right now who are unvaccinated in North Carolina schools, and probably many more who have delayed or altered vaccine schedules. All right, so then getting to this idea of why this is happening, right? Dort Rubenstein Rice critiquing that perhaps people are using and abusing religious vaccine exemptions. Jennifer Reich, a sociologist at Colorado, uh, I know well, uh, wrote an interesting part, uh, article on, help, I need to craft, craft a statement of moral conviction. Can anyone help, right? And she suggests that people go to Facebook and other social media platforms in order to write these statements they actually don't agree with. And the practice is reportedly widespread here in North Carolina as well. Well, work that we recently did evaluating kindergarten exemption rates from 2011 to current across America suggests that it's not just in North Carolina, it's not just in Colorado, it's all across America. What you're looking at here is mean exemption rates, different kinds of exemptions, religious, philosophical, and medical, and the different years that children were enrolled in kindergarten schools. And what you see is that in states where both religious and philosophical exemptions exist, the rate of religious exemptions is minuscule compared to the rate of religious exemptions in states that offer religious exemptions only. Case in point, the state of Vermont, which eliminated its philosophical exemption in 2016, having an average of 0.5% of its children exempted prior, and in the year immediately following, the rate of religious exemptions jumped to 3.5%. This, of course, in a state that's recently tied for 48 out of 50 in overall state religiosity. Well, ultimately, vaccine exemptions and the fading urgency to stay up-to-date on vaccines are important because they translate into an increased risk of outbreaks of infectious diseases in our communities. And these have often occurred in religious communities specifically. 
So, we'll go back to 2013. There was a measles outbreak at a Texas megachurch, perhaps associated with its pastor's disparaging comments about vaccines and the low immunization rates <coughs> in the congregation. In 2017, in Minnesota, another measles outbreak in a predominantly Muslim community of Somali immigrants, also with misperceptions about the measles vaccines. And as we speak, there's an active measles outbreak ongoing in Brooklyn. It has now gone up to about 40 cases, all imported from a single traveler who went to Israel and came back into his insular Orthodox Jewish community, which was under and unimmunized. And so getting back to my coffee cup conversation and the questions that it generated, my literature review found that there was some solid ground on which to launch some studies into this intersection of vaccination and religion. And what's more, as I looked in the literature, there was almost nothing about the role of clergy in that practice specifically. So, to begin my inquiries, I decided to go back in time and search for accounts of clergy involvement in vaccination. I just want to give a quick kind of clarification of terminology that I'm going to be using here. So, inoculation simply referred to the practice of using a lancet to make a superficial incision in the skin and then insert infectious material under the skin to provoke an immune response. Now, the practice of variolation was one in which you used actual smallpox from someone who had the disease, cut the incision, and put that in a healthy person to try and protect them from the smallpox in future cases. The practice of vaccination was using a related virus, cowpox, and inserting that into the incision <coughs> instead. So a difference in exactly what we're doing, variolation versus vaccination. And as we will see, a, a very important distinction. Any questions about that? Okay, great. So my search at the intersection of faith and medicine began in early 18th century Turkey in the famed city of Istanbul with the disease of smallpox. Now smallpox was a fatal contagious disease. It's caused by the variola virus, and it sparked epidemics all over the world that routinely decimated populations as early perhaps as 10,000 BCE. Victims suffered from blistering lesions all over their bodies, and they often left permanent scars, <coughs> caused blindness, and disfigured people. It also killed as many as one out of five to one out of eight people who got the infection. Turkey had experienced many outbreaks of smallpox over the centuries, but as early as the 11th and 12th century, Turks began using variolation, that process of inserting smallpox into incisions to prevent additional cases of the disease. And it turns out it worked. Now, Ottoman physicians actually tried to introduce the practice to Europe at the beginning of the 18th century through some pamphlets, but European physicians were skeptical of these unconventional approaches to medicine. Well, in this context of uncertainty, I learned about the lady Mary Worthy Montague. She was a socialite, she was a writer, she was born in London in 1689, and she bristled at the established customs of her time, and so eloped as a teenager with Edward Montague to avoid an arranged marriage and try and pursue writing, which was her passion. Yet, shortly after she married Edward, smallpox killed her beloved brother at the age of 20, and shortly thereafter, she contracted smallpox herself. Fortunately, she survived, but she developed permanent facial scarring and lost her eyelashes. Perhaps this was taken, this, this was painted before that happened. Well, while she was recovering, her husband was commissioned as the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, and so she moved with her family to Istanbul in 1717. 
And while Lady Mary was there, she learned about the practice of inoculation and witnessed its power to prevent disease in the community there. So convinced of its benefits, she ordered the embassy surgeon, Charles Maitland, to inoculate her five-year-old son, Edward, on March 18, 1718. There you go, Edward. Procedure went without a hitch, and Lady Mary became a fierce advocate for inoculation. And in a letter to her friend Sarah, shortly thereafter, she wrote, I am patriot enough to take pains to bring this useful invention into some fashion in England, and I should not fail to write to some of our doctors very particularly about it, if I knew any one of them that I thought had virtue enough to destroy such a considerable branch of their revenue for the good of mankind. Some things are nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun, right? Well... True to her word, Lady Mary returned to London, and in 1721, she had the embassy surgeon from Istanbul variolate her four-year-old daughter, too, although only after it had been tested on six convicted murderers and 11 orphan children. Maitland published an account of his experiences in 1723, and in the aftermath, about 200 upper-class Britons were inoculated, including members of the royal family. Thus, the propagation of inoculation and variolation in England had begun. And, interestingly, it wouldn't take off until the 1750s. Yet, not all were enthused with the development, including clergy. Shortly after Lady Mary inoculated her daughter in 1721, Edmund Massey learned about variolation, examined its purported benefits, and studied its reported side effects. He was a preacher at St. Andrew's Holborn in England, and on Sunday morning, July 8, 1722, Massey famously preached against the sermon in this beautiful chapter from Job 2, and followed his sermon with a 32-page pamphlet against the dangerous and sinful practice. And it's worth pausing to consider theology of inoculation, as Massey might have construed it. Massey prized the passive virtue of simply trusting in God's divine providence for us. Thus, inoculation promoted immorality. Massey acknowledged God's singular power and his prerogative to punish past sins and even avert our future ones with smallpox, and thus inoculation usurped God's power. Massey also cautioned against blind pursuits of human wisdom and physical health, Thus, inoculation was a temptation to avoid, just like Jesus avoided temptation in the wilderness. In proof of these points, consider a quote from Massey's sermon, He who knows our virtues knows the properest time to try them. He who knows our sin knows also the best manner how to punish us. Or consider, let us not sinfully endeavor to alter the course of nature by any presumptuous interposition. Let us bless God for the afflictions which he sends upon us and the chastisements wherewith he intends to try or amend us. Now, as fascinating as Massey's sermon was, as I read additional accounts from the time, it became clear that Massey was not the only one who was suspicious of variolation or even deemed it sinful and dangerous. Then again, on the flip side, there were others like the Reverend Holton who disagreed and supported the practice. But there was little I could learn about Massey or those other pox preachers. Their short pamphlets didn't really provide much historical background, and their trails ran cold. But the one exception to this was Cotton Mather, I think worth mentioning, an 18th century minister in Boston who promoted variolation when physicians were actually against it. But Mather's actions were already well described in the literature. And 
he and Massey were describing variolation, not vaccination. And so after spending a month or so waiting in the murky ministerial waters of early 18th century opinion on variolation, I decided to fast forward to early 19th century London and the dawn of vaccination. So I went back to Edward Jenner, the famed physician who popularized smallpox vaccination in the late 18th century. <clears throat> Jenner was born in 1749 in Berkeley, England, the son of a Reverend Stephen Jenner, as it turns out. But he was orphaned at five, and he lived with his older brother and developed a strong interest in the natural sciences. At age 13, he was apprenticed to a country surgeon, and he began a foray into medicine that would last his entire life. Interestingly, in addition to medicine, he occupied himself with studies of geology, hot air balloons, migratory birds, poetry, music, hedgehogs, and many other things. Privileged to train under the renowned surgeon John Hunter, he published many works, and he was actually a fellow of the Royal Society well before his vaccination work. Well, for a time, Jenner primarily earned a living through clinical practice in the countryside in Berkeley. You can go and visit that home today. With farms and fields surrounding him, Jenner had heard the tales that dairy maids were protected from smallpox naturally after having suffered from cowpox infections. The complexion of their faces was actually a folklore, almost a, a, a myth about how beautiful these women were because they had avoided the scarring consequences <clears throat> of smallpox. Well, pondering this for many years and perhaps even a decade or two before he concluded that cowpox not only protected against smallpox, but perhaps it could be transmitted from one person to another as a deliberate mechanism of protection. Thus, in May 1796, Jenner found a young dairy maid, Sarah Nelms, who had fresh cowpox lesions on her arms. This is a photograph of Sarah Nelms' arm. And you guys have it, a first edition of this here in your library. On May 14, 1796, Jenner used fresh, fresh matter from Nelms' lesions and inoculated an eight-year-old boy, James Phipps, the son of his gardener. The boy, did he have IRB approval for that? He, he did not. <laughs> but interestingly, as um, Jeff uh, Baker suggested yesterday, that at this time, people you knew, it was well permissible to go and do these sorts of procedures amongst people you knew. It would have been um, impermissible for him to go off the street and grab a random boy and try it on them. But in that time, in that context, if it was a family member, if it was someone you knew well, this kind of action was uh, well acknowledged should be fine. Well, James Phipps tolerated the procedure well, and in July of 1976, Jenner tried to inoculate Phipps a second time, this time with smallpox. No disease developed. And Jenner concluded the protection was complete. So in, in 1797, he sent a short communication about the procedure to the Royal Society describing his experiment, which for those of us in academia, encouragingly, was rejected. <laughs> but in 1798, having added a few more cases to his initial experiment, Jenner privately published a small booklet entitled An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of the Variola Vaccinate. The publication was actually met with mixed reviews, and when Jenner went to London in search of volunteers to prove his point further, he actually couldn't recruit any. Yet gradually, through the activities of other people who were more famous inoculators at the time, 
His practice was gradually accepted and spread to all European countries in the early 1800s. And in time, Jenner would come to be viewed as a founder of vaccination, modern immunology, and the one who sparked perhaps the most lofty, ambitious public health campaign in human history, the eradication of smallpox. This is another page from his book. He has many cases in here that he describes. And again, I'd call you to go to your own library and check this out, first edition, if you'd like. Well, looking for any interactions Jenner might have had with clergy in his work, I began reading his biography. On page 100, gratefully not page 400, I came across an interesting sentence acknowledging those who had helped Jenner promote vaccination. It's but proper to commemorate the services of many ladies and gentlemen in England who particularly distinguished themselves by their efforts in this cause, and among them ought to be mentioned the Reverend Rowland Hill. Well, there is an asterisk. And following the asterisk to a footnote at the bottom of the page, I found the following statement. Mr. Roland Hill eagerly embraced this new means of conferring a benefit on his fellow creatures and ably defended it against his opponents. This, he said, is the very thing for me. <laughs> well, reading this, I knew I'd found a person of interest. And within days, I located a 500-page biography about Hill with a juicy 20-page section devoted entirely to his vaccination work. And after confirming that no one else had investigated him, I began a six-month endeavor to understand Hill's attitudes and experiences with vaccination. And in order to do so properly, I realized I needed to go back to his beginning. So born on August 23, 1744, in Shropshire, England, to a wealthy family of a parliamentarian, Hill earned a Master of Arts from Cambridge University, and he seemed destined for academia. Yet, after hearing the itinerant preacher George Whitefield, Hill abandoned the university for ministry. He was ordained as a deacon in the Church of England, and he was assigned to care for a small town in the countryside, leading a simple life with his wife for several years. But with time, Hill grew restless, and he set out like his mentor Whitefield on preaching tours across the British Isles, England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. Hill became one of the most popular ministers in the Isles, regularly drawing crowds of thousands to dynamic, open-air sermons. He constantly preached what he called the three R's of Christianity, ruin by sin, redemption by the blood of Jesus, and regeneration through the work of the Holy Spirit. He avoided deist and antinomian tendencies of his time and focused his theology on personal piety, care for the poor, and alleviation of suffering. Refusing to join his staunchly Calvinist colleagues, he added a more Arminian view of salvation and was pegged by his biographer in the early Methodist tra tradition, just like his mentor Whitefield. Well, Hill's presence wasn't always welcomed. He was chased out of town, he was heckled, he was pelted with rotten fruit, he was nearly drowned, and once he was almost stabbed. Yet, he survived these attacks and returned after tours to his home church in London, the non-conforming Surrey Chapel, which drew a diverse crowd from early Methodist and evangelical traditions. And you see him right here, preaching in this interesting octagonal building, which no longer exists. Preaching frequently, Hill, de Hill delivered a reported 22,000 sermons during his nearly 70-year career, once even speaking to the point of coughing up blood. <laughs> but during London's noxious summers, Hill traveled to Watton Underedge, a small community in the countryside where he could rest and recuperate from his laborious exertions for the sake of the gospel, as he termed them. As Providence would have it, 
Watt Underedge was just 10 kilometers from Berkeley, where Jenner resided and practiced. Through unclear circumstances, Hill and Jenner became friends, and they spoke about vaccination on several occasions. Gradually, a strong prepossession in favor of vaccination took place upon Hill's mind. And as a Christian, Hill viewed vaccination as a discovery that alleviated suffering and therefore deserved the patronage of all who wished to exemplify the truly Christian mindset. And importantly, he believed that this discovery was for rich and for poor, unlike inoculation, which had been restricted to the wealthy and distrusted by the poor. And it's worth pointing out that in our modern times, inoculation would have cost 600 to 1,000 pounds per person at the time it was circulating, so certainly something that the poor couldn't afford. Well, Hill knew vaccination would never become the general blessing of the land if controlled by fee-based practitioners, so he turned practitioner himself, and he resumed itinerant preaching in 1804. This time, he brought a lancet. Where he went to preach, wrote Jenner's biographer, he announced after his sermon, I am ready to vaccinate tomorrow morning as many children as you choose, and if you wish them to escape that horrible disease, the smallpox, you will bring them. <laughs> <laughs> to multiply his efforts, Hill instructed fellow ministers on the use of a lancet and established a vaccination board at Surrey Chapel, which Jenner's biographer hailed as one of the most effective in all of London. Taking stock of his work in 1806, Hill reported 10,000 cases, 5,000 of whom he had personally inoculated with his own hand. Many more were indirectly inoculated through Hill's efforts. This is him preaching to a group of miners. Now, along with his lancet, Hill wielded a pen to combat anti-vaccine sentiments. Among others, Dr. Mosley cited concerns about introducing bovine substances into the human body. Can any person say what may be the consequences of introducing the Lues Bobila, a bestial humor, into the human frame after a long lapse of years? Well, no. But exasperated by Mosley's attacks, Hill responded in cowpock inoculation, vindicated and recommended from matters of fact. Hill's target audience was surely broad, but he wrote especially to clergy, hoping that ministers having an influence over their congregations might help alleviate their concerns and prejudices against the practice. He refuted anti-vaccination claims, bristling at what he called their, quote, hypocritical reverence for deity, and he provided vaccination technique in the Janarian style. He summarized his views on anti-vaccination campaigns simply, was ever such mere rhapsody and nonsense produced before? Well, I see he's responding to Dr. Mosley in his introduction. Well, considering Hill's pamphlet, one can construe a tentative Hillian theology of vaccination. Hill viewed every discovery that alleviates human woe as a Christian good work, and therefore vaccination was a providential discovery. Hill acknowledged the vaccinator's power to avert disease almost like an angel of God, and he quotes number 16, where Aaron and Moses rush out into a crowd of Israelites as a plague is killing them to stay the disease. Thus, vaccination displays God's power. And finally, Hill foresaw the potential impact on the poor. He knew that the lives of thousands were at stake. Thus, it was an important work of mercy, and it was certainly for the poor. Well, before dying at 88, Hill became a director of the Royal Janarian Society, and he witnessed the decline of smallpox in England. Hill's work was crucial to its decline and key to the provision of vaccines to the poor. 
Posterity has interest in the character of such a man, wrote William Jones, his biographer, in 1834, and such parts of his history as may minister to their instruction. Ultimately, Hill's legacy challenges the warfare narrative between science and religion that teaches that they are opposing forces and which could blind vaccination advocates to the possibility of religious allies. In his pamphlet, Hill made a remarkable prediction. Let our exertions be universal, immediate and zealous, and I am very sure a death by the smallpox will be brought forward as a very rare instance indeed. In short, I believe that no one disease will be less fatal than that which is so much the dreaded scourge of the human race. Hill helped end a dreaded scourge, and his legacy ministers to our instruction. So, how could we face, for example, one of today's scourges like the anti-vaccination movement in the spirit of Roland Hill? Well, as a first step, suggests the historian Ronald Numbers, we have to dispel the hoary truths about religion and science that continue to pass as historical truths. Hill's legacy in a vaccine-contentious 19th century England is emblematic of this kind of concord of science <coughs> and religion, and it's no wonder that his peers suggested he was, perhaps, second only to Jenner, the means of saving more lives in England than any other individual. All right, with that historical study in our pocket, I'm going to take a quick drink of water. But I'd like to pivot to some empirical work at this intersection of religion and vaccination. See, I decided to see if my priest's attitudes were representative of those held by individuals in Denver more widely. This is Denver. This is a map of all of our neighborhoods. My wife and I live here in North Park Hill. I'd be happy to host you sometime. So I did a study, a survey, that I called Denver Religious Leaders Vaccine Attitudes, Practices, and Congregational Experiences. Excited to talk to you a little bit more about it today, and something we've presented a couple times now. The objectives were essentially twofold. First, to describe Denver Religious Leaders' attitudes, practices, and experiences in their congregations around the topic of vaccines. And secondarily, to try and identify religious leaders who are vaccine hesitant, and try and compare and contrast their attitudes and practices to those who weren't. Well, how do we do it? Well, I went online, and there's this wonderful database on the ARDA, if you've not seen it before, <coughs> that takes data from the U.S. Religion Census done every 10 years, provides county-level information on registered religious organizations. So I got all the information for the registered religious organizations in Denver. There are 439, and I called them all three times, <laughs> and I sent them all five follow-up <laughs> emails if there was an email address listed online that I could find for the church. And I asked for one religious leader from each organization to complete an online survey. And it had you know, a few different demographic questions, but really comprised questions about their attitudes regarding vaccines, and I addressed that with a validated vaccine hesitancy tool, as well as their personal practices and congregational experiences regarding vaccines. Well, what did we find? Well, first I found that there are a lot of religious organizations that aren't churches or religious organizations. There are fruit shops, there are Salvation Army stores, so on and so forth. So of the 439, there were only 334 that were truly open with a religious leader presiding. That being said, I had 33% response rate, 109 people fully completed the survey, and an additional 11 people incompletely participated. And you can see that the distribution of the responders and the non-responders was relatively equal across the city of Denver, suggesting that we weren't getting more influence from one neighborhood that might be socioeconomically or demographically different from another. So who participated? Well, 
Mostly, what we had was older white men who were English-speaking, who had been in their position for more than 10 years. The majority were 94% associate or head pastors, or the equivalent of their religious congregation. Now, as far as their personal practices, most were married, most were parents, and most belonged within the Protestant faith tradition. And if you want to get really specific, because I'm here, so we might as well do it. Baptist, Evangelical Free, Lutheran, and Methodist traditions were most strongly represented of those in the uh, Protestant tradition. Well, as far as their churches go, most of the children had at least 10% of the, mem- or the people being their children. The churches were a little bit more diverse, but still predominantly white, and very few of them were low income, so primarily upper middle class uh, congregations. All right, so three main findings from my survey. So first, 42% of leaders agreed that religious texts contained some sort of theme that was supportive of vaccination. But importantly, 24% were unsure and 34% disagreed. We'll come back to these points one by one in a moment. 25% of leaders were considered vaccine hesitant after you considered and calculated their scores. And 28% had actually received questions about vaccines from members of their congregation. Interestingly, only 10% reported that they had spoken formally about vaccines, and all the ones who did said they did so infrequently. And the first time I talked to Farr about these results, he said, I think that makes sense. If I went to a church where people talked about vaccines all the time, I'd probably leave. (laughs) So what about some other attitudes or practices? Well, when when I asked the parents about their practices for their youngest child, so the, the one most close to immunization, about a quarter of the religious leaders used a non-recommended vaccine schedule, and less than half were certain that their child had received the influenza vaccine in the most recent year. Where do they get their information from? Fortunately, most from doctors and other health books, but interestingly, the next most common source was from religious texts, which as we've seen, they were a little bit discrepant about what those texts said. How were hesitant leaders different from non-hesitant leaders? Well, you can see that hesitant leaders were more likely to use an alternative or non-recommended vaccine schedule for their own children and less likely to have given their child the influenza vaccine in the most recent year. And they were more likely to go to the internet for vaccine information and less likely to use information from their physicians. Interestingly, they also thought it was less likely their religious text supported vaccination, and they thought it was more important, or I'm sorry, less important to vaccinate others in order to protect people who specifically couldn't get vaccines. So, returning then to a couple discussion points. So first, I'm going to limit this to Protestant Denver religious leaders because I think that's really what the data was about. They disagreed about scriptural support for vaccines. And I think we've already pointed out that scripture originated long before the time of vaccination. But prior work, and that Gravenstein article I showed, had actually identified themes that have been indirectly supportive of vaccination in scripture. And you think a passage like 1 Corinthians 10.24, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others when thinking about how do we live as a community together, or Deuteronomy 22.8, when you build a house, build a railing around the roof, so no one will fall off. And that way, you won't be considered guilty of murder if someone falls. Now, perhaps a bit of proof texting in these papers, but also ideas around community health. What does it look like for us to live together as neighbors? 
While those indirect exhortations could conflict with other biblical concerns, for example, there is a fetal origin to several vaccines, measles, rubella, hepe, varicella, and in our study, only 29% of leaders agreed with receiving vaccines if they knew that they were made from fetal cell origins. Now, while no new abortions are occurring in order to procure these vaccines, that's something else that needs to be weighed in the balance, perhaps. All right, the second vaccine point. We found that leaders were comparably hesitant to the general population at 25%, as I mentioned. So the work validating the hesitancy scale found a baseline of 15 to 25%. And as I, uh, I recently submitted this for publication and received some uh, feedback that I'm working on right now, but one of the reviewers' comments was, it's important to remember that clergy are people too. And I think as I approached this work, I had, I had thought that you know, maybe for some reason clergy would be less hesitant than its general population. They're often educated, they've gone to some sort of higher level of school or training, and yet perhaps they're subject to the same external forces around vaccine information and misinformation that the rest of us are. So what might that etiology of hesitancy look like for them? Well, it could be that there's that complexity of scriptural indirect support. We've already talked about the sources of vaccine information or misinformation that people are trying to get their information from, right? That religious leaders who were hesitant were less likely to go to doctors. They were more likely to go to the internet. And then there's also things like social group norms. So is it possible that you're religious and you just don't vaccinate because that's what the people in your church do, not that you necessarily have a religious objection to vaccines? And finally, there's certainly space for personal beliefs and personal experiences to influence all of our decisions around healthcare practices. And the last point that I'll highlight was that few religious leaders discussed vaccines with their congregations. Again, right, like we're not going to go to that church where the preacher's like, hey, did you guys get vaccinated today? I know I talked about it last week. I'm going to talk about it next week, right? <laughs> but I think it is interesting to think about how religious leaders are influential community leaders, and they're also very influential in their congregations. They strive to influence our attitudes, our practices, right? Going back to that 2013 measles outbreak in Texas, partly, perhaps, due to the religious leaders' disparaging comments about vaccines. On the flip side, think about the Minnesota outbreak, where imams and health officials were partnering together to try to end the outbreak. And I'd suggest that proactive engagement might be a little bit more helpful than these reactive partnerships formed out of a time of crisis, right? That only come together when there's already disease outbreaks in the community. I think that's what Hill can teach us. And interestingly, French clergy were doing it at the same time that Hill was doing it. There's a great dissertation I recently read about that. But there's also more recent examples. Governor Dale Bumpers and his wife Betty in the 1970s in Arkansas took Arkansas's rates of vaccination, which were around the lowest in the country, and brought them up to one of the highest. And the evangelical Jimmy Carter quadrupled spending on immunization and enacted large-scale immunization laws during his time in office. Even in the 21st century, we have models from Orthodox Jewish communities in New York who are partnering together between faith leaders and health officials to try and create pamphlets distributed to the community to improve vaccination rates. Well, certainly there are limitations to this work, right? We only did this in Denver. The people who didn't respond very well could have had different answers and responses than those who did. And I didn't actually account for any new congregations added because there wasn't a systematic way for me to do that, only kind of closure of the existing ones. And of course, a lower than desired response rate. 
But I think we can draw some conclusions from the work, and I think we have some preliminary data that suggests people disagree about whether or not Scripture supports vaccines. People who are clergy are probably also people, right? And they might be comparably hesitant to the general population for various reasons. And most clergy infrequently discuss vaccines, if at all. I think all these certainly suggest that there's future study that needs to be done at this intersection, and I'm specifically interested in proactive partnerships and what this might look like for the health of our communities. Well, let's translate briefly into a time of future directions. I'm almost done, thank you. Um, so I like to climb mountains. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I went to Colorado. Uh, there are a lot of uh, peaks, about 54 of them over 14,000 feet. And so this is me on Mount of the Holy Cross, a good friend of mine taking the picture. And the thing I love about climbing mountains is that they give you perspective, right? You start, you're in the woods, you can't see anything around you. You gradually get up to tree line, you're starting to see more and more, and you get to the top, and you look down, you saw where you came from, you saw where you're going, you see all the landscape around you for miles and miles and miles. And I feel like as I've started into this work, I'm gaining a little bit of elevation, I'm gaining a little bit of perspective, helping inform some of the future work that I'm doing. So, how might that work be construed? I'm just going to beg your permission on one slide to talk about health theory, this is something that I've adapted from a health belief model. It's been around for 50 years and it helps explain why people make health decisions. And it starts with your individual perceived susceptibility to a disease and whether or not you think the disease is dangerous. And that gets modified by things like your age, your demographic factors, how much you know, what socioeconomic status you're from. And importantly, it's modified by cues to action, people, media, things that influence whether or not you're going to pursue a certain health behavior. Physicians have been well recognized as a cue to action in the medical literature. Clergy, there's really nothing about that, right? And so if we're looking at a likelihood of behavioral change, I would submit that for the majority of the American population that claims religious affiliation, clergy could be a very powerful cue to action toward promoting health decisions. So what's some of the work that I'm doing around setting that cue to action? Well, I'm going back to my pilot study participants, and I'm asking them currently to participate in a qualitative study I'm doing, where I'm interviewing them one-to-one -to, -one to get more information about why they responded the way they did to my pilot survey. And as I've gotten interviews underway, themes are starting to arise. One, love of neighbor, right? There's one priest. What does love of neighbor look like? Let's look at what it does for a population as a whole to be vaccinated. The more that people aren't vaccinated, how it affects the community as a whole, right? Focus on the community, focus on the neighbor. Another interesting emerging theme is that people doubt their congregations are hesitant. One priest said, we're not a church that is going to have a lot of people be into conspiracy type fear-mongering publications. I don't know that I need to speak to vaccines that much. But if I found out there was an issue, I would want to know why, right? So as I said, only 10% of leaders spoke about vaccines, and maybe it's because they're all in this camp. They don't think it's a problem. But if they knew that perhaps there were concerns about vaccines, they'd feel empowered to speak about them. <clears throat> a final theme that's come out is that of science and faith working together. God works through human knowledge, said a pastor, and science and faith are not opposed to each other. We start with faith and look at how science informs faith. Certainly something you all are well aware of. Another project I started is something I'm called the Curious Partnership. Coloradans understanding religion and immunization through OU <laughs> <laughs> Partnership. Whew. 
This was like two years in the making, guys. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I do feel pretty proud. You don't want to call it Curious P? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> so this is a community-based participatory research project that I'm trying to get off the ground with the Colorado Council of Churches. So this is an interdenominational uh, ecclesial community of over 800 congregations across the state of Colorado. And our goal is to recognize the fact that immunization uptake in Colorado is very diverse. This is a map of measles uptake in Colorado by county level. In order to achieve sufficient protection for your county, you need greater than 95% dark green, right? So the point of this slide is there's lots that's not dark green. There are lots of communities and areas that aren't dark green, and they might all have interesting things to tell us and teach us about their vaccine questions and concerns. So we've proposed a one-year study in which we're going to visit 10 different cities in Colorado and hold listening circles with clergy. And the goal is simply to invite clergy, invite congregants, invite pregnant women, parents, fathers, come sit down with us, share a meal, and Tell us, what are questions about vaccines that are important to you? And as that happens, we hope to generate questions of importance to the community, not our agenda, but their agenda for learning about vaccines, that can lead to a couple empirical projects in future studies in one or two specific communities with very specific research questions. All right, final project I'm excited to tell you about is one in which we're going to take this and we're going to move it to Guatemala. Okay, so the University of Colorado has a partnership with uh, the Trifinio region in Guatemala, a large health center there. And as part of an original uh, mapping of the area in which the community was, uh, the, the, the health compound was built, they decided to map all the churches in the immediate surrounding area. So each of these tiny crosses represents a church in this Gu Guatemalan area of Trifinio. And I proposed with a colleague of mine who's uh, the director of our global health center to go down there and to ask clergy and to ask congregants about their views on vaccines. To ask specifically, how would a clergy endorsement of vaccination affect your willingness to get vaccines? To ask clergy, is this your role? Is this your responsibility? What do you think, right? So hopefully we'll have some interesting data from all these projects to come back and share with you at a future date. Well, all right, last slide, good job. So, some conclusions. This intersection, I think, is certainly an important one for us. And we learn through historical accounts, we learn through empirical studies, and I think there's a lot of work to be done. We're just at tree line, we're just starting to get some perspective, and I'm really excited for the studies that lie ahead of us. Well, I'd like to acknowledge a lot of people. Uh, my mentors at the University of Colorado, Sean and Liz, uh, they've helped out greatly with the empirical work I've done. Uh, Denver Health, certainly Abraham Nussbaum, who many of you know. Uh, he's been a fantastic mentor overall, but also especially on this historical work. Steve Federico, my department chair, who's protected my time for two years at 50% to help me do this research work. And all of you for being so hospitable and wonderful, for walking me in the rain to <laughs> meeting me at dinner, and to helping me workshop and brainstorm ideas. And obviously I'd like to thank my wife, who's been incredibly supportive. Uh, and, my, and my mother, who's actually at home with our kids, uh, so we can be here on a fun vacation together. All right, happy to take some questions. All right. Thank you, Dr. Williams. Some questions for Dr. Williams or comments? Dr. Kinghorn, and then Andy. First of all, thank you. That was a fantastic talk. And I don't know if I've ever heard a talk that brought so many different fields of <laughs> together. Yeah. Everyone thinks so. Thank you. No. Really. 
really terrific. Thank you. Uh, where are the centers of uh, vaccine hesitancy in terms of demographics in the United States? Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Somali refugees in Minnesota, but I'm wondering where do you see it in the, in the U.S. and how can that help to identify lines of theological engagement. Yeah, absolutely. So as it turns out, this is one of those areas in public health where being from lower income minority backgrounds doesn't actually decrease your public health outcome. It actually increases your public health outcome. So traditionally, it's richer, whiter, more educated people who end up refusing vaccines. And so in Colorado, we like to talk about the crunchy you know, granola people from Boulder, but that's the demographic where vaccine hesitancy is the strongest. Within school systems, Waldorf schools, charter schools, private schools, uh, that's the demographic where a lot of this is being done. Uh, and then interestingly, immigrants, right? So people with low English literacy, people who have difficulty getting to a health center, especially when, if you go back to the slide, where we're looking at Colorado immunization rates, right? Some of these places to get to a health clinic, you have to drive an hour, right? I'm not gonna drive an hour to get my flu vaccine if I don't have to, right? And a lot of people in rural areas then end up having lower immunization rates just because it's simply harder for them to get in. So I think a lot of those populations are interesting ones to consider. Yeah, just so much of the way that, you think kind of two different, one is like those who, for different reasons, have barriers to access or maybe to just the ability to engage in health systems. Or, and then you have um, people who inhabit privilege in a, in a kind of, in a, in a real sense, the privilege stemming from the idea of private law, that like mm -hmm. laws apply, don't, laws, laws don't apply to us, they apply to others, and we can exempt ourselves in those ways. And, and how to name that in these church contexts, I think it's, is it, is it opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the idea of personal liberty, right? So where where does my personal liberty end and where does yours begin? And I think there's a famous quote about, right, it ends where my fist hits your nose, right? Like that's the, that's the place where these liberties uh, conflict. But historically, there's been legal precedent for compulsory vaccination. And in specific outbreaks, especially in Philadelphia, um, when uh, children are in a community that's experiencing an outbreak of infectious diseases, people have gone to judges and, and gotten court orders routinely to have children in those very communities experiencing the outbreaks vaccinated against parents' wishes. And so that's an interesting thing where some people might claim this privilege, right? I don't have to participate, right? I can benefit from what's going on in the community around me, but also at, at a time that you can get to a level where the public health system does step in and says, well, no, you, you need to participate. You have to uh, do this thing for the sake of your children and the sake of others. So it's interesting to talk about that. Yeah. And picking up on that, you had a question first. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's kind of similar, I guess. Can you speak to the differences? If I was going to guess places in the country that would maybe have a different perception of health in general, it would be Colorado, right? Mm -hmm. The crunchy, I think that, that continues. What, what are you saying about Colorado? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love Colorado, but it's just very health conscious in a lot of ways. Yeah. So are the places where people smoke a lot of marijuana? Yeah. <laughs> yeah true story. True story. Yeah, so I think that's interesting. And I think uh, one, one consideration pertinent to this discussion is could God give us natural remedies? for diseases, right? And there was a qualitative study of homeschooling parents from 
Protestant background done in Pennsylvania this year where they interviewed 14 individuals from these homeschooling backgrounds. And one of the themes that came up was, yes, we're, we're not necessarily less susceptible to the diseases than everyone else, but through our natural homeopathic remedies that God has given us, we can treat them effectively and pre prevent any severe complications. And I think people generally are concerned about what you introduce into your body in Colorado, but they also perhaps think that there are those things that God has given us in nature that we can give ourselves to help protect against these infectious diseases. Good. Good. I just have a, a question because my mind keeps trying to correlate this to um, perhaps um, certain populations having a growing um, lack of understanding about history mm. in the country in general and um, experiences with less than um, privileged culture mm. and how this have heard of anything similar happening in, in the realm of psychology and psychiatry uh, in terms of people's coping mechanisms to where there, there's just a sort of assumed level of, of living, um, standard of living, standard of, of health and ownership of one's own health. Mm. And do we just see a cultural perspectives, uh, mostly in the privileged realm, of, of assuming too much about how life really goes and what, what we're, we are immune to. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, one thing that comes up in, in the realm of that question, I think, is um, how does our forgetfulness of what these diseases actually cause lead us to be less urgently in, interested in getting vaccines, right? And I think, as I've shown, you know, we've really taken disease rates and deaths and complications almost off the table, right? And people, I think, are, are justified in their question of why do we really need to do these things? I'm worried. I want to protect myself. I want to protect my child and you know you tell me that measles exists I've never seen measles I've never seen pertussis maybe it's all you know fake news maybe it's all something else and therefore I don't need to kind of go there and try and do this thing for the community I think there's also maybe a move more toward that individual emphasis in our society less about the community less about how we are part of the community and more about our phones and ourselves and what kind of we project onto the world and less about how we're in the world and of it so I have a, a hypothesis that that there are very few people who have religious objections to vaccines, mm -hmm. even among those who say they do. I think you, you kind of alluded to this, but that you find in crunchy areas, mm -hmm. as well as in certain enclaves of particular religious communities, um, a particular kind of anxiety about and, and resistance to, not just anxiety about it, that would be to caricature it, but a, a resistance to technology and the sort of massive uh, technological ordering of our lives and kind of wanting to pull back and be more natural, either natural in communion with nature or natural in trusting God and God's order. Mm -hmm. and so this leads to the question, do you know when there have been outbreaks, has somebody gone back and seen what proportion of people who re re report who had self-consciously avoided getting vaccinated continue to not want their child vaccinated, even in a school where measles is outbreaking, for example. Because hmm. my hypothesis would be that 90% of them go, oh, you know, get the vaccine now. Now, now there's, now there's a direct threat, mm -hmm. and it, we're not against vaccines. We're just against the, this, 
big technological bureaucratic state apparatus telling us what to do. Yeah. Fascinating question. I, I don't know of anything that directly addresses your question. I do know, um, so Colorado recently published all of its kindergartner immunization rates for every school in every county, and it's available online. And one of my colleagues recently did a survey where they asked parents if they knew what the vaccination rate was at the school that they were going to send their child, would they still send them there? Yes or no? And if no, how far would you drive to go to a school that had a vaccination rate of X to ensure protection. And parents answering the survey, so the baseline, 8% of the parents answering the questions were vaccine hesitant, right? But the majority, almost 90, you know, I think it was 97 or 98% said that they would drive 45 minutes, an hour to take their child to a school where they knew the vaccination rate was above a certain level. And so I think there is that idea where, yeah, I, I do want to trust in nature and I want to trust in God and, and, you know, because it's not a problem, but if all of a sudden it became a problem, yeah, let's, let's do it. And not only let's get the vaccines, but I'm going to disrupt my life. I'm going to drive out of my way to make sure that it won't be a problem in the future. Yeah, one, of the, one of the things I've always been interested in is kind of this association that people have between vaccines and vaccinations and like this debunked myth that vaccines are correlated with autism rates um, and just kind of the interesting assumption that lies underneath that in that like I would rather have my child have smallpox or have measles than to have autism. I'm curious, you talked some about like the historical theological reasons that people have been hesitant to vaccinations. We talked some about it here, but has your research shown or does the research show, like, what are the reasons people are avoiding vaccines? And then also I'd be curious is, like, within this, um, the research of the clergy within Colorado is, um, I would be interested in the relationship between churches that maybe don't discuss vaccines as much or churches where we have vaccine-hesitant religious leaders um, and the amount that they discuss maybe disability or, like, have a, have a, theological understanding of disability within their congregations? Yeah, two great questions. I unfortunately can't answer your second one, but I can answer the first one. Um, and, and it's a moving target. The The reason people uh, reject vaccines is a moving target. And it, I think, more famously recently started with um, Andrew Wakefield, an uh, English physician who popularized this uh, theory that uh, measles vaccine caused autism based on endoscopies, so procedures where you look in the intestines of children uh, who had recently received the vaccine and the biopsies that he obtained from their endoscopies in a case series of eight children. Right, so a, a wildly audacious claim to make, but you know they were arguing that this was at the cutting edge uh, of research, and that's why this was accepted in a very prestigious journal, The Lancet. Now, that study has been debunked numerous times now using incredibly large epidemiological studies from Scandinavia. But in the wake of that being debunked and people showing that it wasn't measles causing autism, uh, other concerns arose, right? So now it's a, aluminum. Right? It's the aluminum in the products that's toxic to our brains. Or it's the mercury derivative in the product that's toxic to the brains and causing autism or, or perhaps just causing our children to be sick. And so I think that whatever you know we, we do to address each concern, right? and I talk often about how the amount of aluminum a breastfed baby gets in just one year of life significantly exceeds the amount of aluminum in all doses of vaccine that they will receive throughout their entire life. Right? And so you, you can address each concern individually very pointedly, but 
it's always going to be a moving target, and it's impossible to kind of know where the discussion is going to head next. And that's why for me, clinically, the thing I try to do with vaccine-hesitant families is simply build rapport, build trust, build engagement, and say, I love your child, and I know you do too, and I know you're making this decision because you love them and you want to protect them, but we're going to keep talking about this, and I hope that next time or two times from now or five times from now, you'll be a little bit more open. And that's where I've really seen uh, progress in my own relationships with families. Yeah. Yes. Based on your studies you did in Colorado, would you... Could you project that you would find a difference in maybe the Bible Belt area? That's a great question. I'm, I'm eager to find out. <laughs> I think that's the, the limitation of a single center study, is that you only know what you know in your one area. Uh, having some fascinating conversations with uh, Carl over here about what it might look like to do something around here. But um, I think that the demographic of the study was older white men English-speaking, married with kids, right? And I think that demographic might map well onto the Bible Belt as far as what kind of uh, demographic you're getting. I don't know how theological training might differ, right? The various traditions that we saw represented in this study and how that would uh, differ in the Bible Belt. I would suspect there's some similar answers, but I'm, I'm interested to find out. And, and really this pilot study um, wasn't to be um, kind of the conclusive <coughs> evidence. It was more actually to, to help generate a reason for a larger nationwide survey of clergy, which I hope to do. Were you able to obtain any of the religious exemption statements, like any examples of, you know, what did that look like? And I also kind of feel like we're slipping, because when I left Vermont, we were 50th. Oh. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. Yeah, we really need to go back to Vermont and, and preach the gospel of atheism, and then we'll, we'll get you, we'll get you back. It's one of those things where it's sort of people moved from, let's say, New York to Vermont, and both places became more religious or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we imported it. Uh, you, you imported it. So, so, uh, so the way that people track religious vaccine exemptions differs in every state. I apologize. I'm trying to find the right slide here. Okay, 12. Um, and when you go back to these, um, these articles I was talking about, if you want, you can go and look at Dorit Rubenstein's article, you can look at Jennifer Reich's, and they actually have uh, screenshots of Facebook posts and um, uh, extracts of, of letters that people have written in their respective states. Um, now, I, I did a, a very, just for the sake of the class I was in, I did a really rudimentary analysis of some of the Facebook posts. A lot of the, the themes coming out were questioning authority, uh, championing individual liberty, uh, championing kind of natural health. And so I think the, the things that people are saying aren't, nat aren't, aren't theological, right? Like under these religious exemptions, the, the content isn't theologically based. It's actually philosophically based, and yet it's what's available to them. And as you claim exemptions in different states, there's actually different difficulty levels for claiming an exemption. In uh, North Carolina, I was talking to some medical students uh, the other day, or yesterday, and I was telling them that here, it's, uh, to get a religious vaccine exemption, you have to essentially give a health form, your vaccine record, to the school where you want to enroll your child. But in North Carolina, I could do this. On this sheet of paper, I decline vaccines for Johnny for religious reasons, right? And Josh, 
I could turn that into you at your school and that'd be sufficient for religious vaccine exemption. So it's no wonder that your rates have gone up by 150%, right? Now, in other states, and, and this is true in Colorado as well, you can do that on the back of a napkin, you can fill out an online form that's just drag and drop, point, click, sign, done. Or you can go to a state like New York that's previously had a very stringent religious vaccine exemption law, and they used to actually vet people's statements to try and establish where it seemed to be a bona fide held belief, right? And of course you get all sorts of legal trouble when you start doing that, and lots of lawsuits, and they've now since stopped that practice. But in the past they would reject people's applications for exemptions because they would say, well tell me, so tell me more about this religion. Okay, so go back two years. Were you involved in this church two years ago? Were you doing these sorts of health naturopathic things you were doing two years ago? And they would often find that people weren't, right? And so they'd say, decline. It was only those cases where they found some sort of consistent pattern of practice. But I think that's really tenuous to try and walk that line legally and ethically on judging the sincerity of people's um, uh, beliefs. Although one, at least in the case of the draft uh, in you know, Vietnam, has had to be walked. Mm. Um, but there you would, you'd argue the state has a stronger, people have a stronger um, perverse incentive to mm. have a religious objection, and the state has a stronger incentive to make sure that it's true than yeah. it would in this case. Um, we're, we're, do you have one more question, Warren? Yeah, we were Last thinking, one. Um, sorry, I didn't realize we were team. Uh, which is a question, a general question I would love to be able to ask in an empirical way is to, to people in churches is um, how, to what extent are you willing to subject your children to some risk maybe a very small risk, in order to help protect the common good of the community. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, and then maybe give some examples of how that might work. And in my sense, uh, I mean, I don't think it's particularly a respecter of, of where you're on the theological spectrum, but I think white Protestants have been extraordinarily effective at finding ways to not make those kinds of demands yeah. and, to have, and to have theological Justifications for not making those kinds of demands, yeah. and I'm just and so thinking about the it, I'm just thinking about your historical work. Like the, the, there was these two sermon, two, two two pastors that were preaching very different kinds of sermons. It's always the underlying question: What's happening with their with with the communities that they're engaging mm. in? Who, who are they hearing about? Who are they seeing? Who are they in contact with? Yeah. And there is something I think this deeply challenges that question of to what extent are you willing for your own children? at some additional risk in order to protect the community. And I, it strikes me that's, that's underneath a lot of a lot of what you're describing here. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, the the question of um, kind of personal sacrifice for the behest of the community is something that um, is intriguing in vaccination, especially in the history of vaccine development, where a lot has gone awry at times. And so I think when I meet parents who are vaccine hesitant, who cite concerns about vaccines, especially rooted in, in historical concerns, and, and Massey and Hill alike were writing at the dawn of inoculation, at the dawn of vaccination in England, they were, they were probably rightly nervous to be writing, but they came to very different conclusions. And so I think even in the context of anxiety about a procedure, there is kind of this idea of scriptural precedent. I'd, I'd be fascinated to ask that question robustly. Please join me in thanking Dr. Williams. <laughs>